Creative Babble. Hey, Jack, how's it going? It's going good. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, you, you you picked a really good guy for, for this interview. Uh, I'm sort of in the pretend category, but in a category by myself, so to speak. Jack Barsky is a former spy, but not just any spy. For 10 years, he was a sleeper agent working for the KGB. You know, the Soviet Union's secret agency. His job was to obtain secret and confidential information any way he could. Jack spied on the United States from 1978 to 1988. And that entire time, his only mission was to become an American. And that's exactly what he did. He moved to New York City, got a job as a computer programmer, and lived an unremarkable life. He made friends and other relationships, all while being the eyes and ears for Moscow. But his clandestine mission as a sleeper agent was bound to end. The KGB, for some reason, got spooked, and they thought our covers were blown. My friend, who lived in, in New York as well, he was called home also, in an emergency. The message was clear. He needed to return to Moscow. You're under investigation. You could be arrested any time. You know, I'm almost 100 episodes into this podcast, and I have yet to cover a spy story. And here we are. Never in a million years did I expect that my first spy story was going to be with a former KGB agent. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. What what was your birth name? <laughs> I hate that question. <laughs> Why is that? Why do you hate that question? I just hate it because, first of all, the first name was Albrecht and the last name was Dietrich. But for now, let's call him by his spy name, Jack Barsky. You know, we're using the word spy, but at first Jack Barsky didn't see it that way. When you were recruited, you had a great term for it. You were a scout for peace. 
Yes, that's what we were. <laughs> this is this is a literal this is a literal translation of the phrase Kundschafter des Friedens. We never used the word Spion, spy. No, oh, no, that was bad. The spions, uh, the spies, were all coming from the West. And I'm sure you never envisioned that you would talk so openly about it. No, no. My uh, discovery by the public was completely. I, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Jack Barsky never intended this story to get out. In fact, it was quite the opposite. So tell me, I mean, how many identities did you assume throughout this whole thing? Well, literally, I would say really only one. The, the Jack Barsky identity was uh, very carefully manufactured. It was based on a on a, on a bona fide birth certificate of a young man who passed away at the age of 11. So we, we stole his identity. The real Jack Barsky was dead. But if Jack was going to pull off this new identity, he was going to need to get his story straight. I'm appearing in the U.S. at the age of 32. So what did, what did I do from birth to that point? You need to know who you are. You need to know when you were born. You need to know where you live. You need to have some kind of a backstory. What are you doing here? Where are you going? Jack and the KGB put together a six-page biography on the real Jack Barsky. It was his entire life story that included his childhood home, where he went to elementary school, middle school, high school, every little last detail. Then I dropped out of high school because I don't have a diploma. I took a lot of the people in my German life, I took them with me and gave them American names. For instance, my favorite first grade teacher. So if I ever had to talk about it, I, I would visualize these people and say, wow, these, she was really wonderful. She, she made us do this, this, and this. They were like mental shortcuts. Sure, yeah. Going back to before you were recruited, you know, what was your life like? What, what was your job? I grew up in a, in, a, in a small village in East Germany. I could get out of my house and walk to the Polish border in five minutes. And I was born in 49, uh, four years after the, the end of World War II. This was a miserable time in East Germany. After the war, food was hard to come by. It was reported that the average citizen consumed about 1,500 calories a day. That's like one double quarter pounder meal. It was very typical that meat was, if it was available, was only uh, on the table on Sundays. Saturday was soup day. You know, my mother told me that when I was, I can't remember that I was too young, she sewed me underwear uh, out of a parachute that my father found in the forest. I slept until the age of 18 in an unheated room. We were poor and we didn't know it. I never felt that I was, I, I had an unhappy childhood. But what was your impression of the West and uh, of the United oh, States oh, and all oh, that? Oh. Being in that in that isolation, you know? quite frankly, capitalism was bad. West Germany was bad. It was run by a bunch of neo Nazis. It was supported by the United States, who was the most evil nation on the planet. And we knew somehow that the standard of living in the West was higher. But that's because they they robbed the third world countries blind. Jack Barsky says that one of his first memories was the funeral for Joseph Stalin. 
you know, the former premier of the Soviet Union. Growing up in post-war Germany was tense. The country was divided quite literally between East and West. And when the Berlin Wall was erected in 1961, Jack Barsky and everyone else in East Germany didn't even think twice about it. And when that wall came up, to me, that was a non-event. It was a good thing. It was a good thing because it protected us. Well, it really <laughs> kept the people in. We got a good education, by the way. And I was taught how to think. I was, I was encouraged to think as long as we didn't question communism and Marxism and Leninism. I, I was on track to uh, become a tenured professor, and that was my, my dream. It was my mother's dream. And somehow I came to the attention of the KGB. I don't know how the person who knocked on the door, who was a German, by the way, how he was told by whom, who, who initially looked at my file. And my file was, it looked like exactly what they were looking for. That's what the uh, KGB did. They, they, they chased after people like me. So I get this knock on the door on a Saturday. I, I'm sitting in my dorm room studying something. And this fellow, he introduced himself as a representative of a local company that was known worldwide. He said he was wanted, wanted to just know what, what my plans were after graduation. And right then and there, I knew that guy was lying. And it was a really bad lie because in East Germany, in those days, students were not recruited by companies. They were assigned. So I knew, I knew the guy was lying. And I figured he was from secret German secret police Stasi because he spoke German. So and I played the game with him. We did a bunch of small talk back and forth. He was really bad. <laughs> he was the worst. So because all of a sudden he changed his, his, his tone. He said, you know what? You know, I, I got I to gotta come clean. I'm really from the government. So here my fast brain goes into overdrive. And he said, could you envision yourself one day to work for the government? Uh, what an indirect question, but I knew what he was after. So I gave him the answer that, that, that made him very happy. I said, sure, but not as a chemist. <laughs> he didn't ask the question and I didn't answer it, but, but we knew we, we, we had... Uh, uh, agreement. Yeah, there was an unspoken understanding, right? Then, uh, but at that point, he left. I never knew his name. The guy just disappeared, and and now I was with the KGB. Well, this was big time when a powerful organization like the KGB uh, asks you to join them. You don't think very long about it. They wanted Jack in West Germany. Jack says that every time he met with this guy, the man would write a report and then send the report back up the chain. He also gave me some tasks, seeing if, if, if I can do the pretend thing already. Jack was given an address. His mission was to talk to the homeowner and get some information on one of her relatives who lives in West Germany. This was a test. And he told me, find a way to get some information about this, this relative. So I came up with this story and I, I pretended to be a sociology student and uh, we were doing uh, a survey. Would you maybe uh, be interested in answering some question? Well, most people would say, sure, why not? So I had a bunch of questions and somehow I managed to get her to volunteer that her 
cousin or nephew was going to visit. And I said, oh, that's nice. What does he do? So <laughs> it worked. The first time that I actually purposely pretended to be somebody I was not. So I learned that you can get away with a lie. No problem. You know, the first time that was, that was a big, big uh, mountain to climb. Really hardcore, honest people make the best liars. Jack passed the test, but that doesn't mean he automatically becomes a spy for the Soviets. For the most part, nothing really changed for Jack. He continued on with his life. Eventually, Jack was hired as an assistant professor for a university teaching math and chemistry. But every now and then, the KGB would make contact. He gave me some other things to do, like, for instance, he pointed out a building and said, can you find out what kind of a company is in there and, and what they do and maybe get the names of some people. And I did that too. I don't know how I managed this, but I I managed to, pl- I think I placed a, a briefcase in front of the door and then disappeared. What was in the suitcase? It didn't really matter. Let's just say Jack was on a need-to-know basis. One one day Herman tells me, hey, uh, you need to go to Berlin. They, they, they want to they wanna get to know you. So I show up uh, in Berlin. That was the first time that I met somebody who I didn't know. It was a, it was a, you know, a secret meeting at a street corner with the exchange of passwords. I met with, met with this guy at least every other day. His name was Boris. Boris, was it his real name? You know, we, we, we didn't operate by real names. And so he gave me some tasks. He gave me a lot of Western magazines to read, literature, then one day, it was at the end of the three weeks, he said, you know, we, we're going we're gonna to visit headquarters. KGB headquarters in a part of the city named Karlshorst. I remember these long, dark corridors, and then we had to wait in, uh, in an anteroom until we were called into the room of the boss. Now, nobody told me his name. Nobody told me whether he, what kind of a boss he was. He was uh, incredibly unimpressive. It's a short guy sitting there. I mean, he, if he weighed 100 pounds, it was probably a lot. But when he opened his mouth, you just go like, whoa. Determined, steely voice. Now, I understood that he was somebody. He then came straight out. He asked me, so what? Are you in or not? Ah, I went, uh-uh. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that question. I tried to deflect and I said, well, you know, I'm not really well trained. And I came up with these idiotic two examples. I need to learn how to drive a car. And he said, just like, don't worry about this. We'll train you. By tomorrow noon, I want to know your answer. Now, people are asking me all the time, could I have said no, absolutely. As I said before, you cannot force somebody into that kind of a job. Uh, If you do, the first chance they get, they will defect. So I had a sleepless night. You know, I really loved the university. I was somebody already. I was known. You know, I had this career that was ahead of me. But there was this thing called an adventure. And there was this thing called special. Being somebody special. I think that was that broke the tie. It wasn't that I was such a flaming communist. I believed in the cause, 
but it wasn't that I was going to sacrifice myself yeah. for the cause. I mean, it's exciting. I was going to play and have a good time. Jack was young and had nothing to lose. Remember, his family had very little to eat. They didn't even have indoor plumbing. The toilet was across the, the, the backyard. It was a hole. <laughs> this was his chance to turn his life around. Plus, in his mind, he was going to be a hero. The Soviet version of James Bond. But they also got the girl and, you know, they drove the nice cars and all this. That broke the tie. You know, I got to be honest about it. <laughs> I, I said yes, and within a month, I'm in Berlin. So I, you know, I arrive in Berlin and meet my new boss, Nikolai, and uh, we meet in his car and he says, well, you know, your first task is to find yourself a place to live. I didn't show it, but that was a huge disappointment. I figured, no, KGB, they're gonna get me. They can get me an apartment, right? And they could. And they're like, figure it out. Figure it out. And do you un understand? And I didn't know it then. That was a test. If I fail that test, I'm done. <laughs> well, eventually I found myself uh, way outside of Berlin. I found an, uh, an outbuilding that, that uh, had a bed, a chair, a, a wood-burning stove, and running cold water. <laughs> was my first test and I and I didn't complain that was important because if you could figure that out you could figure out how to survive in the US with without a tether and so uh, and six months later they they gave me an apartment <laughs> that's when I knew I was I was doing good Jack trained for two years in Berlin in what was basically spy school he learned everything a super spy agent needs to know then we're talking about things like photography Morse code, cryptology, secret writing, and, and surveillance, counter-surveillance, that kind of stuff. The one thing that I was told, everybody who goes to the West needs to learn another language. And they gave me a choice, and I picked English. To me, when I learned English and I did well, that was just normal. Can't, can't everybody do that? Well, no. <laughs> well, one thing's uh, to know English, and then another one is uh, like speak it in a way that that you right. fit in. And, and even even at that time, and I hadn't, hadn't done any phonetics exercises, but at that time, my, my German accent was not as bad as Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, the, the typical German accent. It was clearly audible, but it sounded good enough. Jack got the job, and soon after that, he was on the move again. So, within two weeks, I wound up in Moscow. But there's a problem. Jack met a girl while he was in Berlin, and now he's moving to Moscow. I had gotten to know her maybe a, a year before, and clearly I had fallen in love with her. She was beautiful and nice and uh, just, just lovely. I spent a lot of nights in her place and weekends with her. I didn't tell Nikolai about this relationship. So when, when I was moving to Moscow, I had to break up with her. Oh, man. I can still remember that scene. 
After two years of training in Moscow, Jack Barsky returned to his apartment in Berlin. I still have the key. Jack says that two days after returning to Berlin, someone was at his front door. The, the doorbell rings. But who could it be? I mean, no one even knew he was back. And Galinda, that was her name, was on the other side of the door. She couldn't have known that I'm back. And she asked me, just point blank, do you still love me? So how do you answer that question if you lived in solitude? <laughs> There was only one answer, and I said yes. But, but, but now I already knew that I had value to, to the KGB. So I'm not, I wasn't worried anymore about disclosing to Nikolai that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a woman in my life. And he, he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't flinch. I was allowed to get married. The KGB liked to send couples. So they thought maybe that she could come with me. But uh, psychologically, she, she, she wouldn't have been able to handle this. You might be asking yourself, why would the KGB allow Jack to get married? He's on a serious mission here. Marriage is a distraction. But ah, you don't think like a KGB agent. Of course they want Jack to get married. Because now you have an anchor back home. It makes it so much harder to, to defect. Jack was getting ready to move to the United States. He told his new bride not to worry. Maybe once a year we could meet in Switzerland to keep the marriage alive. And right before Jack's departure to the United States, he got one more reason not to defect. His wife was pregnant. The first nine months living in the U.S., Jack waited and waited for news from back home. I'm, I'm writing down the, the code and then I had to decrypt it. And when I read the sentence, congratulations, as it appeared letter by letter, uh, your son Matthias was born, blah, blah, blah. I went into the hallway and did a somersault. <laughs> I was so happy because, you know, Galinda knew where I was going. And uh, the idea was that you may have to be mostly by yourself for 10 years, but I'm, I'm going to be back. I and mean, we have still have a good life together. That's, that was my promise. This is one of the... Now Jack is in the U.S. His goal was to try and infiltrate the highest levels of government. The, the plan they had was pretty brilliant. You know, I was... Uh, you know, supposed to get bona fide American documents, including a passport, and then... He was going to pretend to be a successful businessman living in Europe. The plan was, the Soviets were going to turn Jack into an instant millionaire. Now, I could just pretty much knock on the door of any country club and say, hey, can I come in? Uh, and, and at that point, I would have become a quite a dangerous agent. But that's not what happened. I screwed up the application for the passport when it asked, what's your profession? And I wrote messenger. And then uh, there were two optional questions. Where are you planning to go? When are you thinking of going? And I, they were optional. I left them blank. Uh, a messenger who doesn't make any money, who wants to go abroad, he doesn't know where, where to and, and when. Something is fishy. And so the uh, agent called me back and I was waiting and called me back and says, you know, we have some questions about your identity. And the first question there was, where did you go to high school? 
I was busted. Jack never did assume the role of the European millionaire. He now had to start at the bottom, just like everyone else. Ah, the American dream. I got my first job as a bike messenger when I was 29. But, you know, plan A was busted. Plan B was really to go slowly up the ladder, go back to college, and then become a professional. And you start again at the bottom. Interesting. So you started from the bottom. They, they gave you something to start with, right? They gave you a birth certificate, $6,000, right? Is that what I... Yeah, I had $6,000 left. To, you know, they gave me ten, but traveling all over the place, uh, that, that ate up some money. I had 6000 and I got another infusion of cash one year after, after my arrival because I, I got myself into a really cheap hotel. Pay, yeah, I had to pay 600 a month, but I had no income. So within 12 months, there's $7,000 gone. But just like he did before, Jack found a way to survive. But let's back up a minute. The KGB gave Jack a birth certificate. How exactly did they pull that one off? I had a birth certificate, I had a driver's license, and I had to pretend, yes. He had to pretend to be a farmer who never had a need for a social security card. Seems like a stretch, but if anyone could pull this off, it's Jack, right? First of all, I I didn't shave for a couple of days. I didn't really comb my hair, I just messed it up and wore worn clothes. With dirt under the fingernails. It looked like I wasn't quite clean. And I think the key was that I rubbed soap into my eyes. Now I had had these tired-looking red eyes. She asked uh, a couple of questions. And, you know, how come you, you don't have a social security card? And I just said, I don't need one. I didn't need a really short answer. And then why not? Well, you know, I've worked on a farm. Nobody ever asks one. That's that's interesting. And, and like you said, that probably wouldn't fly today, but it worked. No, it wouldn't fly today because you get one at birth. Jack went from messenger to farmer to, you guessed it, computer programmer. I know that doesn't really make sense, but it turns out that Jack was a pretty gifted computer programmer back in the day. But you eventually got this job at Met, MetLife, right? MetLife, yeah. As a programmer and you're... Right. Oh, and this was the first time since university that I really had something intellectually challenging. I really loved programming. I said, I can't believe they pay me for this. I would do this for free. For free, yeah. Yeah. So, and on top of it, it was uh, such a nice place to work at. They paid us reasonably well. Not a lot, not too much, but... it was a big step up from Bike Messenger. And there came a moment that took a while, maybe in in my third, fourth year, when some, somehow the little man in my head said, you know, I'm going to miss this. Because I knew I was going to go back home eventually. Right. And what was the mission there? What was your mission? Well, it was, <laughs> it was never really explicitly stated. You go there, you become an American, and then... You just need to meet the right people who have access to information. Either befriend foreign policy decision makers or at least influencers and, uh, you know, tell Moscow what's in their head. While working at MetLife, Jack had access to health records for 15 million Americans. 
He had data from all kinds of companies, manufacturers, and even the military at his fingertips. But what exactly was he going to do with all this information? Uh, on my last visit to Moscow, I told him that I had that information and they shrugged their shoulders. They had no clue at that point that the value of data, just data. I mean, it would have been hard for me to figure out how to transport this stuff. Yeah, because it wasn't like now that you could put things on a jump drive. That's right. right. And like days, you needed like actual documents. I, I, I printed uh, the, the software on paper and then photographed when I had too much information to transmit. And when I, when I stole that software, I just fo photographed the stuff and put the undeveloped cartridge in, into a container. I made a rock out of Plasto Paris and then... Jack would create a container that looked like a rock and he would leave it at a dead drop. I dumped it someplace and my partner in the operation would pick it up. So you made it look like a rock or something like that? And then, yeah. yeah, I can I can go downstairs and show you one. Was that the most valuable information that you were able to spy on that you could tell us? <laughs> Here's the thing, and, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not trying to evade the answer, but I don't think I don't think I did much of anything. I felt guilty because I, I didn't like, I never personally handled secret materials. By the way, I never got feedback as to what whatever I sent was good or not. Nothing. No, no well done. Okay, could we get more? One of my tasks was, and that was ongoing, just to, to get to know people socially and write up profiles uh, and send the profiles back, you know, name, address, what they do, weaknesses, strengths, uh, political leanings <clears throat> and potential angle for re recruitment. They may have recruited a handful of them and one of them may have been really valuable. I don't you know. You don't know because you were just getting this information. That's exactly right. Eventually, being a spy for the Soviet Union became kind of a side gig for Jack. He was working as a programmer, doing work he really loved, and he was kind of getting used to this American way of living. But let's just say things got a little lonely. You know, a single guy trying to pretend to be just a normal average American, there had to be some female companionship. You know, just like, you know, you can't live like a monk. Immediately, you you consider it to be odd. And, and of course, I had my own <clears throat> desires. And so I put an ad in the Village Voice. In those days, the Village Voice was the place where you put ads so for companionship, pages and pages. I met with a few ladies, and one of them was, was the perfect fit because she was not highly educated. She came from another country. She wouldn't have figured out that some, I, I wasn't 100% because once you get intimate with somebody, they sense there's something not quite right. He can't hit a baseball, right? Things like that. Or he doesn't know some things that we all knew when we grew up. You know, there were always gaps and no, no matter how much I yeah, tried you to. You can't study everything. And uh, so she was perfect and she was pretty and, and lovely. So we had a relationship and uh, she got pregnant. And on June 1st in 1987, Chelsea Barsky was born. The birth of his daughter changed everything. You know, I decided that we should move in together. So now I'm, I'm, I'm watching this beautiful, beautiful child. 
There's no way he was going to ever leave her behind. With the biggest eyes you will ever see grow up. And, uh, you, you know, those eyes, they, they absolutely, they broke my ability to leave. But whether Jack liked it or not, it was time to leave America. The KGB, for some reason, got spooked and they thought our covers were blown. My friend uh, who lived in, in New York as well, he was called home also in an emergency. You're under investigation. You could be arrested any time. And, and this, initially, the, the indication was just a red dot. It was a signal at a mutually agreed signal spot. When I saw that spot, I said, oh, my God, not that. I never I never knew that would come. What do you mean by the signal and the spot? Like uh, the, the, the red dot, we had we had a system of signals, very simple, like uh, a horizontal uh, chalk mark, a plus sign, a vertical chalk mark, a circle. Where would they put this? Where hmm? where would they put these symbols? Like a park bench or something that they would... This one was a uh, support beam for the elevated A train. So in, I would pass this when I go to war, when I went to war. So, you know, routinely as I walked to, towards the subway, I just look at the spot and there was never anything. And I, and I was I was at a point where where I knew I was invulnerable, nothing ever would happen. And all of a sudden I could see that red dot. Well, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for that. You know, I just got on the train, I went to work, and I sat in front of my computer terminal and fundamentally did nothing. Because now I had all these ideas running around in my head. What do I do? What do I, how, how do I, I hadn't figured out a way to take care of this child that I was in love with. I knew I would leave her. I knew that I would leave her, but at least I wanted to take care of her. And I had no idea. I didn't. I did, couldn't find anything. So I played for time. I, I they didn't know. They didn't know whether I was sick or maybe the radio. Uh, when they then finally started telling me, in some words through the radio transmission, that we have reason to believe that you're on under under investigation. Maybe the radio was broken. You know, whatever. I knew I had some time. But the time ran out when this guy approached me on the subway platform. It was early in the morning in December, and it was still dark, and there weren't too many people. So he just eased up from, from my right and whispered in my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. Was that a threat? I thought not, but there was some probability it was, some probability, after I told him that I wasn't. I was disobeying that command. For a number of weeks, I would make sure that on my way to work and home, I was never reliably at the same spot at the same time. Went zigzag, different routes, different time. I wasn't fearful, but I was cautious, right? <laughs> so how do you resign from the KGB, right? How do you, what do you tell them? You know, I'm not coming or you just disappear? No, I just uh, I came up with the second most brilliant lie in my entire life. The first one was that I was born in the United States. The second one was that I had contracted HIV AIDS. And uh, that was a death sentence in those days. What I wrote them, it says, I have this AIDS. I made it believable. I said, I got it from this girl who I once profiled, who had an, a boyfriend that she told me later was a drug addict and who had AIDS. So that's how I got it. And the only 
possible chance I have for treatment is in this country. That's why I'm not coming. And I also wrote, I will not defect. I will not betray the Soviet Union or the German Democratic Republic. They bought it hook, line, and sinker. Everything that was there was good for me was back there. There was my family. There was money. I mean, I would have returned a hero. But Jack chose to stay and leave his old family behind. Breaking with the KGB is one thing. He was still a Soviet spy living in America. Weren't you scared that the Americans maybe were onto you? I had one scare before when there was a break-in into my apartment. But I had some counter-counter-espionage measures where I could pretty much find out whether I'm on an investigation or not. And in that the three-week period, I, I, before I told him I wouldn't go back, I, I applied those measures. Some of them were, were, were always there. For instance, uh, my shortwave radio was placed at a certain distance from the edge of the table. So if somebody picks it up and puts it back, if it's a millimeter off, somebody was there. I had a drawer, a chest of drawers. There was an overhang over the drawer, so you couldn't see whether it was completely closed or maybe a little bit open. I had it eight millimeters open. You couldn't see that. You would have to go down there and look at it. And the first thing I always would do when I went to, when, when got home, I would measure the eight millimeters. For a non-spy, that's just so crazy to live like that. Yeah, but it became habit. So I had confidence that uh, that I was not being investigated. They somehow had wrong information. Turns out, I was right. Jack was in the clear. His mission was over, and he successfully managed to break ties with the KGB, and the Americans weren't really after him. It seemed like the coast was clear. Jack finally let his guard down, just a little. Once you're really successful, you become you become the one that you pretend, you used to pretend to be. I felt I was definitely in the clear. And now I focused on living out my life as an American. He got married, had a daughter, things were looking up. I started looking into housing and I found out that actually I could buy something. And within a year we moved to the suburbs and you know my career took off. And I spoke with her and I said, well, why don't we have another child? And within another two years, we moved to a bigger house and life was good. And, you know, I, and I kid you not, there were, there were long, long stretches of time when I didn't think about Germany, when I didn't think about my past as a spy. I was an American. It was like, you know, I was doing a job. I had a family. Life was good. And then one day, the FBI shows up. No, that was a big surprise. It was a bigger shock than this guy telling me that come home or else you're dead. It it came unexpectedly on a on a Friday late afternoon when we passed the toll gate where I was waved to the side by a state trooper. He said, could you please step out of the car? This is a routine traffic uh, stop. So, okay, no idea. And then this fellow comes in from, from the right I had a, had a thought as to what's going on. He flashed his badge and said, FBI, we would like to talk to you. You know, some people probably at that point would have fainted. I went white. The blood left my 
face of white as a sheet. But I recovered within 10 minutes. The jig was up. You wouldn't be listening to this interview right now if Jack Barsky successfully got away with it. Sure, for a few years, Jack managed to live just like you and me. He worked, he made an honest living, and raised a family. But eventually, he was going to get caught. After the fall of the Soviet Union, a former KGB archivist named Vasily Mitrokin turned over thousands of handwritten notes to the British government. When he defected, the former archivist brought six trunks full of documents filled with Soviet secrets, including the name of a sleeper agent named Jack Barsky. It was game over for Jack. When the federal agent apprehended him, Jack said, So what took you so long? <laughs> and I was a smile. There were two guys, a smile on one of the guys that I could see. Yeah, and people say, well, how come you didn't go to jail? <clears throat> if you capture a, uh, a hostile agent, an agent from a hostile com- country, uh, first, what you'd like to do, you'd like to turn them. It was too late for me to be turned. But I still had lots of valuable information. Jack Barsky cooperated with the authorities and didn't serve any time. So six years ago, I became a citizen. This wasn't my country anymore. I couldn't go back there. I would never, I never thought I would, would ever go back there because I, I am as much an anti-communist as you can be because... It's a pendulum. It's... Well, and it's, but the fundamental truth is there may well be, a, there were a lot of good people that were communists as I was growing up, but the system is evil. The system is evil. It doesn't mean everybody is evil. I have no problem saying I'm, I think, that I, I know that communism is evil, period. Jack Barsky currently lives near Atlanta, Georgia, with his third wife and his second daughter. And remember that FBI agent who apprehended him? Well, he and Jack became really good friends, actually. And the agent is even the godfather to Jack's second daughter. You can learn more about Jack's story by reading his memoir titled Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Alliances as a KGB Spy in America. Or you can listen to the new podcast about his life titled The Agent by Imperative Entertainment. I'll have a link in the show notes. So the craziest thing happened on New Year's Day. I unexpectedly got a call from a serial killer. He called me from his jail cell using a prepaid phone. It was the craziest thing. I talked to the guy three nights in a row, and I recorded the whole thing, and now I'm sitting here thinking, what am I going to do with this? Don't worry, I figured it out. But I'm going to need the next few weeks off just to kind of regroup. I have so many good stories for you guys, but they're all kind of like in different stages. And it's just crazy. This next season is going to be nuts. Total bonkers. And did you know that Pretend is almost at 100 episodes? I want to know what you think. I always love hearing from you guys. So if you want, record a short message and email it to me, and it might make its way into the 100th episode. So tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you don't like about the show. Tell me about your favorite episode. Also, I want to thank Colette Works, who is a collage artist who's been making custom episode artwork. This episode was the last art that she made, and it's called Pretend American. 
you should really check out her work and you should check out the special artwork that she made for the show. I'm actually making t-shirts out of the artwork and you can find that at pretendradio.org. Just hit the merch button. I hope everyone had a happy new year and I can't wait to get started on this next season. It's going to be amazing. So remember, send me your voicemails. Love hearing from you guys. Send me your story ideas and stay safe, everyone. Creative Babble.